Culture eats strategy for lunch and inform cultures drive decisions and inspire action. At the Data Culture Podcast, we talk with execs, visionaries, and data experts that you may move from idea to outcome in your own data culture journey. Welcome to the Data Culture Podcast. My name is Sid Atkinson, data culture innovator and consulting leader with over 21 years in data. And my name is Lee Harper, co-host of the podcast with 10 years in machine learning data science. And our guest today is Adam Leonard. He's a real visionary in the space of data for government. He has been serving people of Texas for 30 years, the last 20 of which have been with the Texas Workforce Commission. And he currently serves as the chief analytics officer and head of the iCubed division, which we'll talk about more uh, in a little bit. Uh, so Adam, your kind of background's very interesting and mixed. You've got a BA in government, Master of Public Affairs, and a really varied range of experiences over the last 30 years professionally as well. How is it person that you end up as a chief analytics officer uh, of a large Texas agency? It, it is a little bit of a journey. Um, I've always been good at math as a kid. Like that was the one subject in school that I really did well at. Um, it led me into the engineering school at UT, but I was not quite mature enough to wake up on my own and go to class. So I ended up um, shifting into government, which was something else I wasn't interested in. I was really interested in kind of ideas about um, government and um, kind of what it was for, what it should do, what it shouldn't do, um, its various institutions, legal theory, etc. And from there, I scraped my way through UT but still didn't really know what I was going to do with my life. I was an independent contractor, so I was doing electrical, plumbing, carpentry work, and then realized that, actually, I think I want to run for office someday. Nice. And I went to public affairs, yeah. So um, I went to the LBJ School of Public Affairs um, after a couple attempts to get in. And um, what ended up happening was uh, I discovered statistics, and the dark side, the dark side, perhaps, but for me, it was magic. So I was already very interested in economics and I was interested in once I, you know, got there, um, in, in statistics and there was kind of an alchemy of these things, you know, where you could really see the potential for applying them in government. Um, now, this is in the early 90s, so, I mean, like, I had a better computer than most people at the school that, I mean, like, the professors and everything at the school, I was the only person in, who had actually brought a laptop to class, like, I was that first guy. Um, and I think it was a 386 processor, but... With a backpack, right? With, <laughs> yeah, 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 it was pretty heavy. Um, it was small but heavy, um, but it was... It's, I took all my notes on it. And um, so I was doing that. I was doing, a, I took a summer internship at the Workers' Compensation Commission. And while I was there, I got lucky. Uh, my first boss, he just kind of found me to be interesting, like a younger version of himself, maybe. And he would just let me come to meetings with him, um, with execs. And I was a little naive about it and assumed that if I was there, I was there to participate, um, not listen. <laughs> so I did. 
Um, but along the way, I mean, I was picking up a lot. And in that role over there, I was a consumer of data. I wasn't a producer of it. And that meant that I knew kind of how to take the data and analyze it and figure out things like abusive patterns in insurance carrier data or healthcare provider data or how to investigate potential violations of the statute and the law. And that was really that initial foundation that I worked from, uh, realizing that kind of that was the strength of where I should go. So you had that internship. How did that lead into your first professional, I guess, full-time position at the state? Um, well, at the end of the summer, that first internship, they were like, we'll create a half-time position for you. You can go to school and do that. And so I ended up staying there. I was there for almost 10 years. And um, I was fortunate enough that they just kept throwing things at me and uh, giving me opportunities to try new things. And so by the time I left, um, I had quite a few different things that I was involved in, in terms of audits and enforcement and in um, identifying uh, healthcare providers who were doing perhaps unnecessary um, services and costing the system money and, in fact, potentially hurting patients because they were doing unnecessary um, procedures and things like that. So that was, I guess, the first 10 years or so. Um, became, you know, first became a manager, the classic way that many people do, which is, well, he's the guy who knows how to do all this stuff, so we'll let him manage it. That's not the best <laughs> way to become a manager um, at all. So a lot of bumps and bruises along the way uh, of you know hurting people's feelings, and they just don't prepare you for those first jobs. It takes a while. So I can imagine a lot of our earlier career listeners are probably thinking, well, how, how can I get myself in a position in my first or second job where people are noticing me either for those new and interesting things that you were talking about or for promotions to senior managerial roles. What would you say it was about yourself and how you positioned yourself that made people notice you, made people want, want to give you those interesting things to do or create them yourself? Some of it was creating them myself. Some of it was that unique relationship I had with my, um, with my first director. Um, the division was probably like 60, 70 people. And um, there were four managers, five managers underneath that. And then, of course, the staff. And then, of course, you know, the intern or, or junior staff. And, of course, I was in that position for a while. But somehow I had this permission to just go into my director's office and grab anything off of his desk and go work on it. And just anything. And sometimes it would just be to read on it. And sometimes it'd be to actually, you know, write something up and send it back to him. But it wasn't assignments. It was just me looking for something interesting to work on and in giving that. That's kind of the benefit of that kind of a job, an internship or a, a when a position is kind of created around you is that you get to define the job a little bit. And I would say so to that, you know, that young person or whatnot, when you get into a job, finding a little bit of space where you can show some uh, of your own initiative, where you can bring ideas uh, of how to take something a step beyond what you're asked to do um, to your manager, 
um, and to sh teach it to your teammates so that your manager sees that leadership potential. Those are really good ways to kind of get noticed, I think, and to demonstrate that, you know, there's more there than simply, quote, doing the job. Although I think, you know, Lee, you asked the question for, from the beginner's standpoint, but then, you know, I think conversely, Adam, there's something about executives making that room too, right? Because I think there was, you know, you having the initiative, but then somebody taking a risk. And it's it's sometimes easier to think about that from like an intern perspective, right? Like you give kids like glue and paper in kindergarten, you don't really worry about them wasting the paper. But somehow, you know, in pursuit of, it's okay in pursuit of learning something new when kids are young, but we kind of forget that, you know, in professional careers, it's like people need to learn to do the new and the different. And we can get incredibly... So from like the exec perspective, you may be even that person that isn't the intern, like how, how do executives think about making room for that experimentation that, you know, you were allowed early on? So I can tell you how I do it, which is that, um, I'm a strong believer in professional development and I, I've got, uh, in, in I cubed, as we call it, it's the division name is information, innovation, and insight because we are exponentially greater than the sum of our parts by bringing in together these functions. And um, one of the things that I have always encouraged but have really begun to push more and more is that we need to, we have to have our standard operating procedures because there has to be a standard way of doing certain things that are repetitive or that you know, you're required to do. But that doesn't mean that you should be limited by those things and that people should be always looking for ways to do them either more effectively, more efficiently, um, perhaps completely differently because it turns out that there's a flaw in, in something that we're approaching. But, but part of it is I don't ever want to load people down if I can help it to the point where they don't have any room to explore an interesting idea or to try to learn a technique. Um, there's so many incredible resources out there that uh, it would just be kind of a shame if like we kept them so busy that they had to do all their professional development on their own time. And I know a lot of places may do that, and there may even be a lot of government shops that do that. But from my perspective, we really need to try to avoid that. Now, of course, there's crunch time, and there are certain deliverables and, and periods where that's just not possible. But um, doing so, not only does it, you know, help that person, but I think it really also helps them feel valued and invested in and more likely to want to be part of the organization because they realize that we didn't hire them for what they could do when they joined us. We hired them for what they could become. And that's actually a nice segue into talking about <clears throat> TWC and your, your role there because both your role and the role that data data culture and analytics has played there has evolved a lot over the 20 years that you've been there, driven in large part by yourself. So talk us a little bit through kind of how you started at TWC and how that led to the data culture and the divisions that use the data and empower the data being created and changing and morphing to the iCube that you have today. Absolutely. So um, when I joined the agency, it was in a small department called Performance Analysis and Reporting. It was about 20, 22 people. And um, 
this is the way that I think 20 years ago, most data shops operated. And sadly, unfortunately, there may be a many government. To, today as well. I mean, yeah. you know, some things have changed than they should, and I think. Right? Yeah. Um, in some data shops, the, or government, um, uh, government data shops, if you will, it's really kind of an additional duties as assigned for IT or, or something like that. And then they're not really data analysts. They approach it more from, well, we programmed a report and we run the report and then we turn in the report, right? And that's, I mean, yeah, that, that keeps the feds off your back. The box is ticked. The box is ticked. It's like, yep, got that, mark that off the list. And, you know, um, then they build a performance measure for themselves around it about the number of, you know, reports they get out on time and accurately or something like that. And so that which is measured is done and, and that's where the focus is. Only that's not really where all the value is added, is it? Um, but, I think you all have to start somewhere, right? So this group was spending 80% of their time producing standard data um, for the agency, for federal reporting, for state reporting, and about maybe 20% of its time answering ad hoc questions. And those are the questions that the program people, the policymakers, the elected officials are asking about our system that can't be answered by the official performance measures, which often are not really good measures. So, um, ultimately we needed to flip that. And over time, what we did was we invested in working with our IT group to automate many of the things we were doing manually, because the reality is, is that computers should do things that are repeatable, right? And so, humans should be doing the things that are creative that require you to think through a problem and solve it. Um, and then once you've solved it, if you want to repeat it, then get the computer to continue to repeat it. So that was, that was kind of that first phase, the first three, four years I was with the agency was really about trying to make that pivot from being a compliance shop to being a shop that could answer questions. But from there, um, as we began doing that, it was still very much in the ad hoc sense, right? Someone would come up with a question after the fact. And slowly the agency started getting interested in really using data. Um, they would, you know, be curious about, well, does this program work? Does this initiative work? Um, and not necessarily measuring it through the standard performance measures, but the problem was, is that when those questions would come up is really late in the process, like after the program was done. So nobody would ask, okay, well, what does good look like? What's, right. what's success? What data do you need to gather in order to do that evaluation? Well, how could we even rethink a program so it can be more successful rather than just what people think it should be? Yeah. Um, and so what would happen is they'd kind of come to us after the fact and say, so, you know, we, we've just finished this initiative or this program and we need to um, evaluate it. And you'd ask the questions like, all right, well, you know, what's the data look like? What, what, did, you, what did you gather? Oh, we just gathered the, the normal data, the same regular data. It's like, is there an easy way to separate out what we did for these people versus what we do for other people? Um, well, there's a check mark to indicate they went through this initiative, but otherwise, no, not really. 
Um, really, the question is, is stats magic? Yes. Which the answer is, it's powerful, but it's not magic. No. So this was not really working, as you can imagine, right? Um, and so I'd been thinking about this problem, this, which was that we were a department. And in my agency, you've got kind of, we have the, the structures, you have three commissioners appointed by the governor who are um, then um, confirmed by the Senate. They serve six-year staggered terms. They represent the employers, the public, and um, employees. And um, they hire an executive director who runs the agency, the three commissioners set policy and such. Um, and then the executive director hires division directors and the division directors hire department directors, et cetera, et cetera. So where most of the major decisions are being made are up at the division director, executive director, commissioner level. Data wasn't in the room. It wasn't represented at the table. Nobody was representing it at the table, even though there was a division director who I reported to, and I liked him a lot because he supported me when I needed it and basically gave me complete autonomy otherwise, which is a very nice thing to have, um, especially if you're creative and interested in testing ideas and not asking permission. Um, so it was a good arrangement, but that nagged at me not having somebody with the perspective of data in the room at the beginning of the conversation when someone would say, start talking about initiatives saying, hey, we should probably get together on that and think about what we're, you know, how you're going to want to be able to report on its results and evaluate them and present them in public and all of that. It's also a challenge. Even people that support data that are well-meaning, then and even now, many executives, you know, and something that we are trying to change on this podcast, maybe aren't as, you know, data, dare I say, data literate yeah. as they would want to be. And so having a person that is in the room becomes a lot more important, who can make the case more powerfully, perhaps, than those that are almost giving the secondhand information to people. Yeah, so we're now kind of in the early 210s and um, 210, 211, 212, thereabouts. And I had been thinking about this idea that the agency really needed an, a division level, executive level, at the table voice for data. Um, a division that we ultimately called operational insight. And the timing on it was even though I've been thinking about it for a little while, it, it finally came to be when that division director I had, who the one who supported me when I needed it, but who basically gave me complete autonomy otherwise, <laughs> announced that he was leaving the agency. And I realized, oh, my new boss may or may not actually give me that same freedom. <laughs> so I walked down the hallway to our executive director's office and uh, I didn't have an appointment. I didn't have anything in writing. I didn't have pitch per se, other than I'd been thinking about this idea for a while. And I knocked on the door and I just said, hey, do you got a sec? And he said, yeah. And then in the space of about five minutes, I laid out this vision of operational insight. It's a standalone division within the agency that would be on the executive team with me running it. 
and here's what we would do and what the benefit to the agency would be um, and how it would burnish our place kind of nationally as a, um, uh, a leading workforce agency in the country, um, using data to improve what we do to help you know, improve the lives of, and of people in this state and, and of businesses and communities in this state. And he literally just slapped his hand on the table and said, I love this. Let's, we're going to do this, write it up. And How did that feel? It's incredible. Um, it was incredible. He was a great man, and we lost him way too early, unfortunately. Um, but um, to get that kind of support, because I always knew that he respected me and and my ability, but to be invited to the table, to be brought into his inner circle, even within that table later, um, was something that I cherished and really appreciated about him. And he wasn't necessarily super data literate, but he was smart enough to understand the value of it and he, that he didn't need to know it, that he had enough trust in me and other people that this was becoming a thing, that there was a greater and greater understanding that um, the value of data and decision-making um, in a meaningful way, not not in a uh, the bromide that data-driven has become, but but actually using the information to try to improve what you do um, or determine whether what you're doing is not working so that, again, you can pivot to something that might. So, you know, since TI was founded, TWC's been on quite the, quite the cultural journey going from the early foundation there all the way through to what you now have, you know, iCubed. How did that journey look like to go from, you know, the start of DOI into iCubed and Mostly for our listeners, you know, what is iCubed? Right. So How has that kind of assembled itself? So here's the funny thing about iCubed. I mentioned that when I joined the agency, um, there was, I was in a department called Performance Analysis and Reporting, and those functions still exist within iCubed. It's just, we do them quite a bit differently. But the division itself had research and evaluation as a little department, and it also had two groups associated with labor market information. And it was all together because the then executive director, who was prior to the one I was just talking about, thought if you just put all those data people together, some magic would happen. And um, there's a reason why 70 to 80 percent of all reorganizations fail and that is that all they are is redrawing the lines on the page as to who reports to whom there isn't necessarily a strategic vision behind it so here we are not at it was not quite 20 years later that our now uh third executive director that i've worked for um uh, the one who replaced Larry Temple, who we lost. Um, he was, his name is Ed Cerna, and he was uh, the deputy executive director for um, for Larry and eventually um, was selected to be the permanent executive director. And uh, just about 18 months ago now, he decided that he wanted operational insight to be expanded, that he wanted to bring in business transformation and business process improvement 
which is the innovation part of the name, although innovation fits to everything we try to do. Um, and then also bring in labor market information. So whereas before Operational Insight primarily focused on our agency's um, programs and services and outcomes, and LMI focused on the overall labor market. So it was like a macro micro kind of difference. So if it involved like all workers, all employers, all wages, all jobs, that was LMI and it was in a different division. And if it involved the the work, the workers, the wages, the employers that we as an agency or system served, it was in my division. That was changed. And um, Ed said, we need to bring these things together. And I think that, you know, it can be, you know, we can really make it work. And so I emphasized this in my first division meeting with everybody. I said, some of you have been here for more than 20 years. Some of you will remember that we were all kind of in the same division once before. And we'll remember that it kind of really wasn't that special. And I'm going to tell you that this time it's going to be different because we definitely have a vision. We have executive support throughout, you know, top to bottom, um, across far and wide within this agency for the success. Um, and we are going to work together now instead of working within our silos. So at this point in your career, 30 years in, you know, a genuine leader in the space, what sorts of initiatives and what sorts of you know, innovations are front of your mind right now? Um, it's very, it's really very funny that, you know, I had been out speaking at conferences and things around the country for years. Um, part of a lot of work groups and, and committees and things like that in primarily in the workforce system space. So talking to other workforce agencies in other states would go to other states occasionally to help them with a problem or whatnot. But somehow during the pandemic, even though we were all in our houses, you know, telecommuting, the world opened up and I began meeting new people, a lot of new people, and who were working in adjacent spaces. So I started working with a lot of people who were in the more formal education space, K-12 and post-secondary education, um, in our state and other states. And I began um, working with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. They got interested in some work that I was doing and have now given me quite generous grants to extend that work. Sweet. It is because we're a pretty big agency, but every dollar that's in our budget that goes to a support function, and let's be honest, data is a support function. Ideally, it pays off more than what is put in, but it's still a support function. It's a dollar you can't spend out, you know, directly towards services. So if I can bring in additional funds, um, towards some of these ideas, uh, it's helpful. But they introduced me to a bunch of people. And so I began seeing a lot more of what was happening that I kind of suspected that was happening. I began to see, I began to meet all of these different people. Um, and also I began working um, with um, a woman named Julia Lane who you can Wikipedia her, but she 
has done really some exceptional work in um, kind of use of government and data. She was responsible for a major census program on longitudinal um, household dynamics and things like that. And she had put together this, this nonprofit that was promoting and facilitating the sharing of data anonymously across states so that those states that have a lot of commuters and whatnot um, would be able to get a better picture of what was happening mm -hmm. to the people they served. So from the benefit of this and, and then seeing these states working together, I realized that, you know, we have 50 states plus assorted territories. We all run the same programs. We all serve the same types of people. We all have the same types of problems. And we are all working on those problems more or less independently, which basically means that we're kind of wasting our money. Right, either you're solving it 50 times or you've got you know, states like Texas or California with more money solving the problems or solving perhaps a wider range of problems that states like, like you know, Wyoming or the Dakotas maybe don't have the resources to address them all. So if you could solve them once and have that or even no. solve them five times. Recognize the individuality of the states, that not every solution is going to work for every state because there are cultural differences and there are political differences. And you know something? It's not my job to worry about the political differences and everything, right? It doesn't, whoever is elected, they have the right to set the agenda. And my job is to just make sure that whatever um, programs they want to put in place, whatever money that they want to spend on it, that it is efficient and effective. It has to achieve the results that were intended, right? But the same thing is true in every other state. Um, and so chances are it's more like there's four or five solutions that maybe we want to be developing so that states can pick and choose or maybe, you know, best of breed some of these things. But yeah, the point is data is a team sport. If you can work together with others to solve common problems, then you really have something. And so one of the areas that this has been occurring in is something called the multi-state data collaboratives. There are three of them that have been formed so far. One in the, that the original one was in the Midwest, centered around Illinois and in, uh, Indiana and, and some of those states in that region. Um, there's one in the South, um, which um, looks a little much like the Confederacy. Uh, for a little too much, perhaps, in terms of which states are it kind of are in it, and then one in the east, kind of more northeast. Um, they're in different stages of development, but what's important about them is that they are focusing on different things, also, right? So the Midwest one is really very focused on data sharing. The southern one is really more focused on kind of problem solving, piloting, sharing hey, I came up with a solution. I'm open sourcing all the stuff that I've built. All you have to do is map your data into my data model and all these Tableau reports will work for you. Um, I mean, so, you say all you've got to do. I mean, that, that of course can be a challenging problem for some people. But... It is, but imagine starting with, imagine starting with, I've got my case management system and now I have to think about what types of reports I want, what types of reports I need, what types of insights I want to be able to generate, 
I have to figure out how to, um, you know, what's going to, how do I make it accessible for people who use um, screen readers, 508 compliance, all of that. How do I make it understandable for users? I mean, it's a lot easier to map to an already existing coded design than it is to take it from beginning to end. Well, it's kind of like having the questions, right? Like these are the reports give you like, well, these are the questions. These are the things that you should be concerned about. And so take what you know and what you can see and map to. So it's it's like, as we always frequently say, with the end in mind, right? Yeah. Like what, what am I trying to solve? And helping people think through that can be one of the most important first steps. Right. So we've been, we've got all of these, they're not loose threads, but they're disparate, right? There's all these different things happening out there. Within um, within the education and workforce space, there's long been um, a number of um, initiatives around connecting the data together to try to improve education um, and help students and their families make better decisions. And they have a whole bunch of names. So there's... One of the older ones was learner outcome tracking. Um, there was the state longitudinal data systems. That's actually was uh, started by the U.S. Department of Education, and so they would fund grants to individual states to create these systems. Um, some folks call them cradle to grave. I'm sorry, cradle to career. Perhaps <laughs> it should be the other. <laughs> but um, and and then one is. P20W, where the P is preschool and the 20 is assumedly PhD level or, or other advanced degree. Um, and the W is for work, except that uh, many of the people in the um, education world think that it stands for wage records because that's all they want from the wage or the, the workforce agencies who are participating in these things. But the problem with this is like, if I just said all those things out loud to you and hadn't ex given you the context, you'd have no idea what any of them mean, right? Because th there's no clue what they are. I had a pray guest there from some uh, Douglas Adams novel or something. Uh, <laughs> it could be from Douglas Adams novel. Absolutely. But no, um, you know, some of them sound a little creepy and, and some of them are sound like they were built I, academics or or policy wonks or or something along those lines. Well, they were right. I mean, for the most part. Uh, yeah, yeah, they were. But if by chance you get in a meeting with an elected official or one of their staffers, and you want to talk about the use of data and how important it can be for informing um, good good policy good programs, better outcomes. None of those are particularly sexy. None of them are very understandable. And so you end up spending too much of your early conversation just trying to explain what the heck you're talking about. Even though there is a growing consensus and understanding of the value of what's called evidence-based policymaking, right? So looking at all of these different terms and thinking about all these different efforts got me really kind of thinking about we're reaching this critical mass, but we need a way to tie it all together and message it in a way that people are going to get behind and understand fairly quickly. And 
so I began thinking more about, all right, well, what is education for? What is, what, what does the workforce system do? What are our, what's our mission as organizations, as you know, whether we're the, the agencies, the, the schools or the training providers, what, why do we exist or why do people use our services? And really it kind of comes down to the idea of we're trying to help people and businesses communities achieve and maintain prosperity, right? So if we're about prosperity, if we are in the prosperity business, and in fact, you could make the case that all government should be in the prosperity business, regardless of what their, what its function is, is that it's really about safeguarding its citizens to allow them to achieve prosperity, then my business and that of my fellow, you know, data travelers around the country is data for prosperity. And that is where we are right now is, is starting to try to talk about it in these terms and getting people to realize that it's, it's simple mantra and something that really people cannot begin to understand. And instead of asking what you mean saying, well, tell me about some of that work. Well, Adam, there's, um, Something that you said earlier, and then tying what you just said now together. And I think the, um, for a lot of folks that are listening, talking about like the support function, I think, you know, people in your area can feel it's like, hey, I am important to the agency and I'm important to the work, but I'm also, as you mentioned earlier, they're spending dollars on me that aren't going to the programs. And yet some of the things that you are being invited to talk around, you know, all over around is then how you actually put more dollars back into and, and safeguarded those dollars for the programs. And so I think that the thing that you're talking, you know, what you're looking at now is data for prosperity and what you're, so, I mean, talk a little bit about the results, which is now like given everybody rise to see this huge value of the support functions and like the, the things that your group does. Sure. So, um, well, one of the, the, there are a lot of different ways that we can um, that we can basically bend the needle. That we can identify things that uh, you know programs that work. And for instance, there, our agency um, provides uh, vocational rehabilitation services to people with disabilities, and one of those. Um, there is a program that was created years ago that focused on people with developmental disabilities, um, but it was um, intended to basically give them a trial of several different jobs in a hospital where they could try working in, you know, janitorial, they could work in food prep, they could work in surgical um, um sterilization, I think, several jobs like that at unrotations, find something that they were interested in and that they like. And we did an evaluation that basically looked at the outcomes of people who went through that program versus people who went, you know, people with similar conditions who demographically were similar um, and geographically, et cetera. We accounted for all that and then found that the program absolutely had a positive impact on their outcomes as measured in terms of employment and earnings. And so that ended up 
helping support expansion of the program to other sites around the state. Um, we need to do more of that. So I have people working on a couple of different studies right now. Um, so we're kind of at the beginning of really doing much more in the program area. Um, and, and part of that was delayed because of the pandemic. Mm. So I'll return to that to a second. The pandemic is, we, we paid for ourselves for the next hundred years during the <laughs> pandemic, um, because during the pandemic, the, uh, a very well-meaning Congress created a new program for unemployment insurance that applied to people who were self-employed or contract workers or, or others, um, who don't traditionally qualify for unemployment insurance. And so there weren't as many safeguards, right? So a typical unemployment insurance claim, you reach out to the employer to verify. It's like, hey, this person says you fired them. You know, wasn't for was it for cause? Is it was it a layoff? Was you know what what's going on here? There are other things that you can look against. You can figure out. Well, wait a minute. They said you work for this per, you know, for this employer, and we don't have any records of that because we get wage records from employers. So there are a lot of different things that we can do to identify potential fraudulent claims. And that worked reasonably well until the pandemic hit. And um, suddenly we had a 1,200% increase in claims. We took more claims in the first six months of the pandemic. Um, I think something like 60% more claims in the first six months of the pandemic than we took in the entire two and a half years of the Great Recession. Um, and our system was a mainframe, still is, it will soon not be, but it couldn't scale. And our fraud fighting system that was in place, the systems that we were using, they couldn't scale. They could, they literally couldn't, they were choking on the file and they couldn't spit out results. And then you add in all of these other claims that had, um, didn't have anything you could bounce them against to kind of try to validate them. And suddenly you just had a recipe for incredibly rampant amounts of fraud, especially when you think about all of the data breaches that have occurred, not in our system, but out there in, um, you know, various data brokers and retailers and others who've, who've had data breaches. And so there are a lot of fraudsters who had a ton of personally identifiable information and were able to file, you know, fraudulent claims in the names of real people. And at first we weren't ready. Like it was, it was too big, too fast. We, we couldn't use the, the appliances we were, we were used to using. And we had to bring in some outside help to get us going on it, to modernize our stack and, and to be able to process those huge amounts of data. We had, um, we had invested in enterprise data warehouse, um, that we hadn't been really fully utilizing yet, but we were able to bring in uh, a really good contract team that knew how to work together. And more importantly, were more interested in working with us than working on their own and then delivering a product. And so um, they helped build kind of our first line of defense against all of that fraud. Um, and then worked with my staff to help make sure they understood every step of the way how it worked how to enhance it, um, 
and then eventually moving from kind of more of a deterministic-based approach to machine learning-based approaches. And we're now like two or three generations past what they originally built to the point that less than seven-tenths of suspicious claims, seven-tenths of one percent of suspicious claims um, ever get a payment. And when you talk to your peers, how does that compare? My peers... Um, don't like to talk about their numbers. <laughs> okay, we don't we don't have to cast any aspersions. But 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 I mean, we estimate um so so we go through the process and you know, we estimate claims that are suspicious and then we basically send them for ID verification and some of those don't come back. And so we've gone through and built another model that looks at those and tries to take a second look to examine and determine, well, they're suspicious, but how suspicious are they? Are they suspicious, probably fraud, or are they suspicious, maybe not fraud? And by comparing them to cases that investigators actually worked, that gives us a better sense of what the real quote unquote fraud exposure was. And we estimate through this that we've saved about $4 billion uh, in potential fraud payouts since the pandemic began. And during the course of um, the period since March of 2020, we've paid out probably between 54 and $56 billion in unemployment insurance benefits. So that's what I mean by um, the, the program, the effort, the anti-fraud effort, more than paying for itself and being an incredible return on investment for our agency uh, and in the several divisions that were involved in the process because the, the budget of the divisions involved is nowhere close to $4 billion. Our whole agency budget is $2 billion a year. So you mentioned their machine learning. Yeah. Um, and that's an area that you feel very strongly about. Yeah. What do you see maybe over the next five years as the future of machine learning in the workforce space? What's the technique to bring to bear? We are using it everywhere. Um, we are using it. Um, we're still using some old old school multiple regression and, and similar evaluation techniques. I'm an all of the above type um, um, sh shop. I, I believe in those, that those techniques exist for a reason. They work for a lot of things, but- it's tools in the tool belt, right? You have the right tool for the right job. The thing about machine learning is, is you can produce like a hundred machine learning models. You can test a hundred ideas in the time it can do one randomized control trial, right? I mean, and so if we use machine learning to help us look at promising ideas, and some of those will then require further work to help us target some of those other techniques, then it becomes there's a real synergy between them. But in the meantime, um, we serve enough people in our system. And as an agency, we're a little bit impatient. Um, we'd like to, like once we have a good idea or once we have something that we really think makes a difference, we'd rather go ahead and, and put it out there. We'd rather get 10% more impact now than wait two years to get 20% more impact, right? Because in the years it takes you to get there, you're getting, you know, 10% more impact for those years. So we're currently using it on a variety of projects. For instance, um, we 
the, the vocational rehabilitation program I mentioned, the average case length is two years. And it is a very heavily intensive counseling type program, a very, uh, it depends a great deal on the rapport between um, the participant in the program and their counselor. And they take extensive case notes. And um, there's a lot of data that's captured there that's structured and unstructured. Well, if you've got a case that's potentially that long, as opposed to the cases we have in um, other programs that might only last a few weeks, there's time to maybe turn a case that's heading in the wrong direction around. So we're using machine learning and natural language processing to actually predict which cases in the VR program, we're building models now to do this, that will let us predict which cases appear to be on the wrong path after about six months. And then that would allow for us to escalate those cases to VR management, who could then have some form of an intervention that to try to get those cases turned around and moving back in the right direction again towards a successful outcome for that participant. And what I like about that example is it's not automating the intervention. You're using it really to augment what a human is doing because they're still going to figure out what should be done about the case to turn it around. Right. But it's more like that augmentation of human rather than replacement or automation of a human. Yes. And another area we're doing that same kind of thing, and this one's going to take a little longer, is we have a lot of different programs that provide the same kinds of services. And so we've really been stressing more the idea of services, not programs. Like I've always said that in an integrated system, which is what we aspire to be, if the person you're serving knows the name of the program that they're in, you're not really an integrated system, right? They should, <laughs> just, they should just be a person coming in, getting assistance with job search, training, whatever the services are. So, but there are a lot of different services that can be provided to people and they can be provided in a variety of different ways. And so what we want to do is go in and figure out what works better for different types of people. And if we can, you know, you do a market basket analysis to kind of group our customers into similar buckets of people who have similar backgrounds, values, respond to different types of services similarly and identify what those services are, then we can build a recommendation engine for the case managers out in the fields. And again, we're not taking away their autonomy. We're not telling them what to do. We're just going to put some information in front of them that says that this person you're working with, um, other people with similar backgrounds tend to have 20% better results with this mix of services or whatnot. So you're giving them the information so that they can make an you know informed suggestion to the person. Now, ultimately, that's not taken away from the autonomy of the person either, because ultimately, they don't feel like that's a good fit for them. Well, okay, it's not a good fit for them, but you put that something out there and you've respected their autonomy and, and their, you know, their um, individuality in terms of understanding what works for them. And let's face it, all models are wrong. Some models are useful, right? So the model's it's not going to be perfect all the time. But if it's better most of the time, it can really bend the needle. 
So I see a lot going on with machine learning in this area, and it's it's kind of funny. Um, some years ago, um, the Department of Labor, U.S. Department of Labor, was putting together a little cohort of eight states to um, kind of a peer group to work on evaluations. So they were really trying to push, you know, evaluation work, and they were doing so in a very traditional academic 1990s type approach. Um, they would kind of accept experimental, um, quasi-experimental design, but really all they really wanted to talk about was RCT. And so we have the chief evaluation officer for the, for the Department of Labor, which was a relatively new position at the time. Um, the federal government had just, uh, or Congress had just mandated all the major agencies, uh, maybe all the agencies have a chief evaluation officer, which is a good thing, um, certainly. Um, but we had this person on the phone and they're going over all of the plans and, and techniques. And you have to understand something like if there's an innovative forward looking group, I want to be part of it, right? That's just that's just in my DNA. I don't like just to follow. Who you are. I don't like to follow. <laughs> I want to be on the front edge of anything I can be because that's where you can shape it and that's where you can learn from it. Um, so we're having this conversation, and finally, I just said, "So, where do you think that machine learning and AI fits into into this work?" And this person just dismissed it this chief evaluation officer and just said, oh, well, that really doesn't have a place uh, in here at all. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? And they said, well, yeah, it's been, it's been shown that machine learning isn't as effective uh, for social science as, um, as traditional evaluation methods are. And I said, okay, but traditional evaluation methods haven't evolved in 30 years except for there's more computing power today than there was 30 years ago. So you can work with data sets, bigger data sets faster. Have they ever seen marketing? So I said, machine learning has grown more in the last, you know, couple of years than the other. I said, in five years, may, maybe you're right. Maybe machine learning isn't as good for social you know, science yet. But in five years, I mean, it's, it's potential and it's, and it's expansion and what it's doing. I mean, it's exponential. Or it's different kinds of problems. Yeah. Yeah. You know, if, if you've done an RCT and you've done a proper evaluation, that's probably going to be the best way of evaluating that, that program. Right. You know, machine learning isn't going to replace that. No. But traditional statistics can't deal with, you know, case notes that are unstructured language. Right. That's going to have to be machine learning techniques. So it's, going back to the tools in the tool belt, you can't just dismiss, yeah. you know, the monkey wrench. Right. Because it's less effective on this class of problems over here. Exactly right. I mean, and that was so frustrating to me because I I understood what she was saying. And like I said, she could have been right. At, this was, I don't know, five, seven years ago. Maybe back then it wasn't as effective or maybe there maybe people hadn't found the right social science type problems to apply it to yet. But I knew that the growth in it and what was happening in the community of people developing and testing and using it was there was so much energy behind it. It was like, this is the thing to place a bet on. 
didn't mean that I was getting rid of the old school stuff. I've got some, I've got some very smart PhDs who, you know, um, did their dissertations using the, the, these traditional methods and they're still using them in my division today. And they will continue to use them, um, because they work and they're great for certain problems. But like I said, I can do a hundred machine learning models to figure out um, different areas for further investigation or ways to put minor, you know, minor improvements in place right now. So uh, basically I quit that uh, cohort um, that day because I said, you guys are building 1990s Camrys and I'm interested in building Teslas. So. So kind of related but different question. And you can't say machine learning for this one. No, oh, okay. Well, yeah. I'll work on it. <laughs> what is something that people should either start or stop doing right now, today, in your space to improve their work? The Probably the most important thing is to stop waiting for the right time to start. Um, it's really easy to say, well, once we have X we'll be ready and then we can start doing this. And I was a victim of that early on um, because I had a long list of things that we needed to do first or so I thought. And I didn't realize, no, actually start small, get a win. You can do a lot with a small data set, even on a you know desktop computer. You don't necessarily need a huge, you know, massive, treasure trove of data and a big data warehouse or cloud environment or all of those other kinds of things, you can do a lot just with what you have. And um, so stop waiting for the perfect moment and just dive in and try it. Do something. Get started. Get a win. Show it to your customer, whether internal or external, and they're going to want to learn more. They're going to be interested. I mentioned earlier, data is a team sport. And in that context, I was talking about, well, data users or data, data people around the country working together on problems. But I, it doesn't just refer to that. It refers to the idea that it's an interdisciplinary sport, right? You need all kinds of people in there. You need your data analysts. You need your subject matter experts. You need your program staff. You need policymakers. You need to understand kind of the parameters um, which that they would like you to be looking and prioritizing things. And so at the end of the day, um, the work is always going to be limited by the expertise and the level of, of engagement investment you get from your customers. They are as great a resource to you in your work as the data itself and your people. And I think with that, that's a perfect place to stop for the day. So, Adam, thank you very much for your time today. It's been a great conversation. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to be here, and uh, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you. Thank you for listening and being an advocate of the data culture community. Curiosity intersected with data can inform and inspire change for the betterment of all. Let's build cultures to make this happen. If you have a topic idea, want to be a guest or chat, reach out to me, Sid Atkinson, on LinkedIn via DM, or via the Data Culture Podcast LinkedIn group. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, please do so anywhere you get podcasts. 
Be sure to join our LinkedIn group to engage with your fellow data culture changemakers and visionaries. Thanks again for listening.